certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. In the weeks before Sarah Spears went missing, a young woman reported being stalked by a white station wagon in Claremont. Hello again, welcome to week 21 of Claremont in Conversation. You're with Natalie Bonjolo, Tim Clark and Damien Cripps. Now Tim, this young lady was 19 at the time and today, some 24 years later, her terrifying ordeal was uh, read out in court. Yeah, that's that's right, Nat. Um, so, long time Listeners will remember the, the Telstra Living Witness portion of the trial that was was predominantly done before Christmas. And this is the prosecution basically um, putting together a series of mysterious and uh, disturbing events that they say occurred in, in and around Claymont, in and around the time of the murders, um, to try and show, according to them, that the, the, uh, the uh, as, as serial as the alleged murders were, um, they weren't um, that they weren't individual cases. If you like, there was a series of of behaviours going on in and around Claremont at the time um, that all linked basically to this white car, a white station wagon, and some of those previous witnesses have told of, of the station wagon even having the Telstra logo on it. And this was yet another one of these. Um, this was a statement that was read into court. So this um, woman, is, this young woman as she, as she was at the time, wasn't in court to tell this story. But it was um, it was still pretty uh, pretty compelling and pretty disturbing what the uh, what the, the, the witness statement that was read in said. She was a barmaid at the Cottesloe Hotel um, around that in 1996, and she was on her way to. Club Bayview after work with some friends um, in January 1996. So that's very close to the time, obviously, that Sarah disappeared. Um, she spent a little bit of time at Club Bayview, but it wasn't her favourite venue, particularly, she said, because there were strobe lights and she'd suffered from some uh, problems with epilepsy earlier on in her life. And so she decided to leave and walk back to her car, which had been parked at her workplace at the Cottesloe Hotel, which is about about a mile or just over a mile away, around a 20-minute walk. And she said it was during that walk that she had this very confronting um, uh, incident with a white station wagon, which slowed abruptly um, in her presence when she was walking home um, and then left and then came back again um, and proceeded, she said in her statement given to police, to basically stalk her um, on the footpath at, 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 at some stages or at the very end of, the state, uh, of this incident, um, reversing towards her to basically try and prevent her from 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 walking any further um and it was a tinted window she couldn't see the driver but nevertheless she was very intimidated very scared and very frightened so frightened in fact that she crossed the road a couple of times to try and prevent the car coming any towards her any closer because using the median strip as a as a kind of barrier um and eventually the car did um, leave her alone, but not before she was left pretty terrified by what had happened. So terrified, in fact, that she reported it to Crime Stoppers on the day, on the night. 
And then later on that year, after Jane went missing, she reported it again to police. Um, um, and that's how it became part of this um, th th this tranche of, of evidence that the prosecution has now used uh, more than 20 years later. Yeah, I mean, she must have been uh, feeling at that time when these other young women disappeared that she perhaps had um, had a very, very close call. Damien, you know, we've heard from multiple witnesses um, who've said they've been picked up by or in this case stalked by someone in a white station wagon during those years. And it definitely adds to this picture of a predator in the Claremont area. And I guess it really reminds us of what it was like back then and I find it interesting to hear these stories of people who um, have you know really kept them quite close to their chest over these decades and really hearing them for the first time. Yeah I, I, it's unusual in a court case to have people in that seem quite removed from the actual allegations come forward and and give a story about something that might not be related at all. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is the key. I mean, we should point out this yeah. is not, not, not subject to any allegation towards Mr. Edwards. None of these supposed or, uh, you know, so-called Telstra living witnesses are said to be him in person, but it, it is the prosecution that have been allowed, I suppose, or permitted to paint this picture of, of this white car or could be white cars, we don't know, um, getting around in Claremont at night, at the uh, relevant times, um, and seemingly accosting only um, vulnerable or um, lone women um, as yeah. they as they walked on those streets. And you're right, Damien. I mean, even last week, you know, one of these uh, witnesses that we heard from uh, gave a description which which didn't match Mr. Edwards at all. And the car, of course, was old and a bit battered as opposed to a new car. And so it is interesting to hear these um, living witnesses with their evidence. It, it's interesting, but um, it does concern me a little bit um, as what I just said before, it's you could argue that they're not, you know, they're simply not related. And and the principle, the evidentiary principle, is that if it, if it's not relevant, relevant, then how can it be something that the court can consider? Um, and I haven't been privy to all of those applications and um, the behind the scenes uh, conversations that might have taken place. But um, as Tim pointed out, then they're, they're, they've obviously. Um, come into court and they've obviously been allowed for whatever the reasoning is uh, and they do paint a picture um, and what comes to my mind is that essentially the prosecution are painting a picture of uh, potentially how many other people had been approached by, um, uh, has to be said in the prosecution's version, by potentially the accused that, that was unsuccessful on that mm. occasion. Mm. Yeah, and you'd have to th and you'd have to think, Damien, that if this was a jury trial, and we've had this hypothetical conversation many times over the last many months, if this if this was a jury trial, you would have thought that the defence would have um, battled a lot harder to keep that stuff away from their ears. In fact, a judge might not have even considered uh, the the application at all. Absolutely. So, so at, like I said, Tim, what, I'm not privy to what the um, the, the behind-the-scene arguments uh, that have taken place, and I'm sure there was numerous, um, but I guess the upside for the defence would be, if there is an upside, if you can take an upside, the upside is at least they can walk away from 
um, that knowing that there, it is a judge alone environment where the person who's making the decision um, is in a lot better position to have the internal insight to know how to appropriately appropriately deal with that information. Yeah. Well, I mean, Tim, today Mr Jovic did object uh, to some evidence today and this was um, to do with the homicide pattern expert. So this was a very interesting scenario. Can you just talk us through how this unfolded? Yeah. So this this, this is the real um, uh, pointy end or, or, or certainly the, the, the short end of a very long case. Um, it was flagged way back at the, at the opening back in November and, and today we got to this. And this is the prosecution's um, uh, bundle of evidence that relates to, well, firstly, every murder, homicide, manslaughter, um, attempted murder, and driving by uh, dangerous, uh, death by dangerous driving in Western Australia mm. from 1988 to the current day. Now, if you want to talk about extraneous material from the actual allegations, <laughs> you can't get much more extraneous than that. 1,533 cases. It took uh, the police, uh, WA police analysts almost four months to put this spreadsheet together. Wow. But the, the reason for this is that they wish to show or want to try and show that um, these three cases are linked to each other but not linked to any other unsolved crime um a missing person or um even um, unidentified human remains that have been found in western australia over the last 30 odd years and so the way they did this was to start with the large start with the very wide base of the pyramid if you want the as i mentioned 1533 cases and then um, apply as many filters as they could to hone it down right to the the tip of the pyramid, which they say are these three cases that stand alone um, and cannot and should not um, be linked to any other possible um, cases and therefore any other possible suspect. And so the way they did this, they got these cases um, and then um, um, applied varying several filters in fact so the first of those were the suburbs where they took place so claymont as we discussed is a western suburb an affluent suburb of perth and so what they did is they applied the western suburb filter to all these cases first um, then they applied um, uh, the victims whether they be male or female so that obviously um, honed these cases down a little bit more. Then they um, applied the um, uh, whether anyone had been convicted of, of any of those remaining cases. Um, and again, that uh, trimmed it down even more. And there were basically six cases left um, from those original mass of cases that the prosecution then pointed to. Three of those were Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, and Kira Glennon. And then there were three others, um, the case of a lady called Pamela Lawrence, the case of a lady called Susan Christie, and the case of a lady called Corinne Rainey. We discussed the Rainey case a little bit in previous podcasts. If anyone is interested in that case, it would take me another 83 episodes <laughs> to probably explain the history of that. So I would suggest anyone wanting that, just um, just look that up on the internet. Um, but the point of the, the other three, 
Miss um, Lawrence, there was a conviction which was then overturned, but police believe they do know who killed Miss Lawrence, um, who, a person who is now um, deceased. In the Susan Christie and Corinne Rainey cases, their significant others, if I can put it that way, were both charged with those um, murders, but acquitted um, after a trial. And so what you're left with out of all those cases is Sarah Jane and Kira. And that is what the prosecution say. These aren't linked to anything else but each other. And we link them all to one man, Bradley Edwards. Yeah. And it was interesting, um, Paul Jovic uh, effectively said that this line of evidence is relevant um, mm. to the trial. Damien, what would potentially be the reasons that, that he may say that? Oh, well, there's numerous reasons why, well, in my mind, there's numerous reasons why it's irrelevant, simply because um, the starting point for me, having not reviewed those cases, would be that um, the accused man hasn't been accused of the of the charge. I mean, that's a, uh, surely logically, even for listeners who don't have a huge background in um, the trial process, would think that... It, if you weren't making an allegation that the accused person was involved in this crime, why then do we hear anything about them? Yeah. Well, they they didn't just leave it there, did they, Tim? Because then they uh, the court also got this breakdown of missing person statistics. Correct. Um, again, a, a similar um, scenario and a similar process done. Um, all the uh, ex- missing persons cases um a missing person, according to WA Police, is someone that hasn't been um, cited for more than 90 days. Um, all those sort of unresolved cases were also um, put under the same sort of filtering process. And again, we got down to um, uh, we, we got down from dozens to basically a dozen. Um, one of which included Sarah Spears. Um, and again, then the the, the witness um, or witnesses were then asked um, about these particular cases um, and their unique circumstances, I suppose, whereby, whereas in the Claremont case, obviously, cases, we've been told um, consistently how similar they are in terms of lone women at night over a weekend, abducted while walking alone um, after dark, um, and how, again, where where there might be um, around about a dozen missing persons cases, um, none of them really fit um, in the the, the scenario um, that the prosecution um, want to paint um, in, in terms of Geography, for instance, um, a lot of them were done, or a lot, a lot of the missing persons cases are sort of more <clears throat> uh, rural areas of Western Australia rather than in um, Claremont. Um, the Haley Dodd case, for instance, which is which is still classed as a missing person case, even though there has been a man um, charged, convicted, acquitted, and it will be going towards a retrial. That was up in a place called Badgingara, which is way out of Perth. So, again, they they. they asking the judge to look um, at all these cases and say, well, none of them fit together um, apart from Sarah and then um, she fits with with Kira and Jean. Yeah, I mean, it really does, to the layperson, sound like, you know, they're they're trying to tie up 
every possible loose end that could be followed down a rabbit hole almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it is a little bit like that. It has been a little bit like that or a lot like that, actually, um, over the, the course of um, over the course of the trial. Um, but, uh, I mean, WA Police have obviously put a lot of work into into this section of the case as well. Um, as I say, four months it took to make bring up this spreadsheet but um it didn't uh, it didn't take us too long to, to go through it um, mm. today um and as damien pointed out and as i pointed out and as you pointed out mr jovic did rise before it all started and say look we would stress against your honor taking this into account at all um given its relevance and if you do deem it to be um, admissible, then we would argue against any or what weight um, you can you can put on it at all. So once again, just another another couple of sheets of paper into Justice Hall's inbox <laughs> for him to uh, try and sort out when this is uh, when this is all all said and done. Uh, Damien, in your experience, uh, you know, is is um, the judge more likely to allow evidence to proceed in certain circumstances, or or not to allow it to proceed? In my experience, they can, it's very considered. It's a very considered decision because there's a, this ramifications on both sides, and the, the ramifications. Um, are significant. So if if, if a, a judge is making a decision about whether he's going to allow some evidence in, the, the first thing is if if he allows it in, um, does it become something that gets appealed later on? I mean, you know, that that's something that I think must be at the forefront of a person making that decision's mind. You know, like if I don't allow it in, will it get appealed? If I do allow it in, will it will it get appealed? Because ultimately. Yeah. I guess one of the ways that he could approach that or a judge could approach that in those circumstances is saying, ultimately, I'm the one that can give it the weight that's appropriate in my view. Um, I'd better to sit here and listen to it. I'd better to take the time right now in this trial process to sit here and listen to all, all already here, the evidence ready to be presented. I can hear the evidence and I've got enough experience and enough um, intelligence to give it the weight that's appropriate. So in my experience... In, in an environment like this is, I think that, and it's just a thought, I don't know the answer to this, but I think that a judge would be more inclined to let it in and hear the evidence mm. and then give it its appropriate weight after hearing it. In a jury environment, that would be a completely different scenario because what you've got to deal with there is once, you, once the jury hears the evidence, you can't control how they deal with it. Yes. So, so you're in a situation where you'd say you can direct the jury how, how, you know, that, what a weight they can give it. But it's it's sort of like a, a wild dog led, led amongst the jury once you've got it in. So at least in this environment where he knows he's the only one that's going to have to deal with it, he can compartmentalise the information that the, that the witness gives or the evidence, whatever it is, and then ask himself after having heard it, do I allow that into my consideration or do I completely put it out? Um, so in my experience, I think when you're in a situation where there's a judge alone, my feeling is they'd be more inclined to let it in if they were if they were unsure, because at least then they can hear what the evidence is. Yeah, Tim, you also heard today from a forensic scientist whose job was to profile Edwards following his arrest, and this included looking at hair samples um, from the accused. 
Yes, yeah, so um, we've heard so much from so far away um, in the trial. Um, Canberra, um, the UK, um, America, where we heard a little bit more today. And this is from um, the, this portion of evidence was from Victoria, um, which is uh, what we, we refer to in the West as over east. But um, <laughs> uh, Melbourne is the capital of Victoria for all our uh, overseas listeners. And this was the um, Victorian um, uh, equivalent of Path West, basically, where they do all their DNA sampling. Um, and we heard uh, that um, police were very interested in hairs in particular. Now, we've heard a lot about hair, but these were very particular hairs that were found on um, Jane and Kira's body that police at the time didn't think that were theirs, didn't belong to them, was so-called foreign hairs or, or foreign foreign fibres. And so they were sent over to Victoria um, for what is called mitochondrial DNA testing, which is slightly different to the vast amount of DNA evidence we heard earlier in the trial. Um, it is, it, 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 it's mostly done on hair and what it looks at is, well, it, it can compare hairs and then if you've got a source um, here, you can compare them and, and see whether they come from that person or someone in that person's family. And so after Mr. Edwards' arrest in 2016, there were hair samples taken from him and then they were sent over to Victoria um, in, in 2019 to check, um, to basically check to see if those hairs found on Jane and Kira belonged to Mr. Edwards. Um as the listeners can probably guess, they didn't. Um, if they did, we would probably heard a hell of a lot more about it by now. Um, but once again, it just goes to show um, even two, three years after Mr. Edwards' arrest, um, these investigations were ongoing, very intensive, looking for any um, more potential evidence um, that they could get. Um, from evidence that they'd had for many, many years but didn't have anything to compare it yes. to. And then I think finally today you heard from uh, these statements from several agents who'd worked with the FBI. Was there any mm. new information in, in this? Um, not um, spectacularly new, but it was more detail about what the FBI were tasked to do. This is back in, um, in 1999 in particular, um, Kira's shirt um, was was the focus of um, quite intensive um, scrutiny um, by the FBI, who at that time were deemed to be among the best, if not the best, at the world in the world at this particular type of analysis. Um, and we've uh, we've covered very uh, very very um, long and and detailed evidence about what was found on that shirt, i.e. Um, blue fibres. What did strike me, though, was um, how these um, uh, fibres were actually um, extracted from the shirt. Now, you might think it would be done under a microscope, you know, with, with tweezers, but uh, we heard today that part of that was, uh, was actually just a metal spatula. Um, and apparently what they do is they hang the shirt up um, with a drop sheet underneath it and then take a spatula and literally scrape and hit and see what falls out oh. of the shirt. Um, and then everything that is on that drop sheet is then 
placed um, into petri dishes and then looked at under the microscope. Um, um, so to hear that was um, was 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 quite interesting. I, I, I wouldn't think you would see that on um, CSI in Miami or anything like that, but no. apparently that's the way it was done back in the day. Um, and it, it did uh, it just jog a, a little memory from um, something that um, that Reese Powell, the fibre evidence talked, uh, the fibre expert from Perth talked about. Um, in that there is apparently there is and was um, apparently some um, discussion within forensic circles about that um, technique of extracting material from clothes and, and similar items um, done like that and whether it was the most um, efficient way to do it. But um, if at the end of the day um, those fibres um, do help Justice Hall come to come to a decision, then um, I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure the police will, will say it was a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, I mean it's certainly not a technique that um, you know our forensic expert Brendan Chapman had spoken to us about at all. So that is a very interesting way of doing it. Now, of course, tomorrow will be a very big day, and this will be the first time we hear from Bradley Edwards via this six-hour police interview. Yes, so we finished a little bit early today, so everyone can, I, I think, <laughs> go away, take a deep breath and, and get ready for um, from, for what will be a big day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's the last witness of the prosecution case tomorrow, um, Detective Senior Sergeant Joe Marapodi, who um, I've, I've, I've sat behind for many, many days in the last few months since he's been on his laptop and I've been on mine. Um, uh, but he is the uh, what they call the investigative officer or investigating officer. So uh, the the man that will speak to and on behalf of a lot of other officers. But he was also one of the two officers that conducted that interview with Mr. Edwards um, after he was arrested in December 2016. And so that video, or um, certainly a large portion of that video, will be played in court starting tomorrow. Um, it's been edited down a little bit to take out some um, material that both sides agree that Justice Hall doesn't need to hear. Um, but there is obviously a lot of it um, that the prosecution does want him to hear. Um, and certainly those of us who've been following the trial very closely are, are also um, wanting to hear as well. Yeah, Damien, how important is this um, this video interview? Uh, it, gives, it gives me shivers down my spine to even contemplate that that's going to commence tomorrow. Um, <laughs> one of the first things that ever happens to a person when they get... Um, when, when they get taken in for questioning or when they get approached by police or they get arrested or they're the subject of a warrant is, as most people would know, they get offered the opportunity to contact a lawyer. And when anyone contacts me or any of my colleagues, the, the, the police generally call us and they say, we've got person X in custody. Um, they've requested to speak to a lawyer. In some cases, it'll be they've requested to speak to you. And then the only thing realistically that um, a lawyer in Western Australia can say to that person is make no comment and essentially what that means is uh, don't speak to the police about what they're trying to speak to you about and and there's some things that essentially a person has to give uh, information that, that's not subject to that right so they have to say their name and they have to say their address um, and in some circumstances I think most of the time now um, if, you, if you're asked to give your fingerprints you have to do that as well um, but so they're taken into a room and they're advised by the 
um, the police that they're being filmed, they'll say, you know, there's a camera on the other side of that glass and there's some microphones in the table there and we're going to ask you a series of questions and you're not, you're not ob obligated to say anything. And the reason that they're given that right is because of what's going to happen to Mr Edwards tomorrow is because at some point during the trial, the investigating officer is going to turn up and he's going to say, on such and such a date, in 2016, we arrested uh, the accused person and this is what he said. And so then that's played in, in front of the court. Now, if you, if you haven't had any legal advice or you haven't had the opportunity to consider what the legal ramifications of saying anything are, you could, you, you're potentially speaking into an open forum in an uncontrolled environment, which it just it, it makes me... It, it sends shivers down my spine and not because I think that people... Um, who have committed a crime um, should be protected by not saying anything. Just essentially, just by the virtue of being a defence lawyer, I'm always trying to make people understand that sometimes you might not actually understand what you're saying um, when you're speaking openly to the police. And, and I've seen it numerous times when I've watched an interview. And obviously, as a defence lawyer, I'm a little forgiving to people. So I'll always appreciate and accept the person said I will say I said this but I didn't mean it in that context so tomorrow what what I, I will imagine Tim um, the numbers in in the courthouse have uh, dwindled away a little bit since the start of the trial yeah well cer certainly they dwindled away to next to nothing uh, <laughs> at some stages but um, Look, they've been slowly getting um, bigger and bigger. Um, there were there were more people in court today, including um, sort of close family members of, of both uh, both Sarah um, and Kira. Um, and I'm anticipating there might be a few more again tomorrow um, because, I mean, this uh, we've spoken for so long in public about Mr. Edwards, but we've never heard Mr. Edwards speak in public before, apart from to enter pleas, um, be they guilty and not guilty um, at this Absolutely. stage. Absolutely. So tomorrow, this is, this is the moment when, yes. when the people of Western Australia are actually going to hear words come out of this person's mouth and are going to get a, be able to get a little bit of a feel for the person that, that is at the end of this accusation. And, and just to go back to um, Matt's question, I... At this stage, I would have thought this is the most significant piece of evidence that the prosecution are going to bring. I mean, obviously, depending on what he says, but even the interview goes for six hours, um, and, and that's with a few edits here and there, obviously, but um, it, it can't be the case that he simply said no comment, because in my experience, mm. if, if a person um, tells the police that they're going to say no comment, a lot of the time, police won't persist with the interview, um, but in some cases, they will persist with the interview anyway, and then they'll head into the room and, and it will get recorded. And if, if the person gives an interview that's predominantly no comment, they won't, they won't bother with it. Um, but obviously, he's um, said something of substance because they're, they're going to play this interview that's seemingly quite long. Um, so I would have thought... To, in answer to your question, that this is a very significant piece of evidence. Yep. So would Bradley Edwards have had legal advice prior to doing this interview? You would have to think that he did. I mean, mm. uh, given, the, given the, um, the nature of the case and the, the significance of it to the people of Western Australia and the legal system, I would have thought it would be fraught with danger for any officer 
to have thought that even if even if he had said no 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 I'm happy to proceed I'm happy to proceed if I was the investigating officer and I just don't have the skills but if I was um, I would have thought in in um, conjunction with consulting with my senior officer I would have said you know what given who this person is and what we're alleging against him let's give him the opportunity to speak to a lawyer before he does his interviews so I, I would have thought he would have definitely been given the opportunity um, because otherwise we wouldn't be in the position we're in now but mm. um, we'll, we will never know the answer to whether he um, heeded the advice that was given to him or whether or, or what the situation is oh I see and uh, is there ever an opportunity that you can have a lawyer sit in on that police interview with you? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting question because obviously um, we're in the jurisdiction of Western Australia and we our system um, is a, a system that's very similar to most of the systems that people would be familiar with through the media. However, there's little nuances in the, in the system here and um, Western Australia and Australia that make it a little bit different to that that we see, especially in England and that we see in the in the US. Now, my, my understanding is the reason we we don't have lawyers in um, with people doing their interviews in Australia is because that lawyer can then be called as a witness. So, one of the reasons, say, if a client of mine rings me up and says, I'm about to be interviewed by the police. Can you come in and sit in with me in the interview? Well, the reason why we don't do that is because we can be called as a witness in that, in, in that case and then, then we can't act for the person. Um, but one of the, the, the situations that I've never had the opportunity to test or um, consider at great length is whether if p perhaps you called me and I came down and sat in with the interview in, with you, then you could get another lawyer at a, a later date. So I'm not whether, sure whether Tim's ever been in that experience where he's watched a video in a court where an accused person has had a lawyer sitting with him. Have you, Tim? Um, not from memory. Um, a lot of the... Oh, and, and obviously child witnesses and um, uh, minors who are accused um, are in a slightly different position because my understanding is they have to have a responsible person or responsible adult with them um, during that time. But but no, I, I think you're right. I mean, from my experience anyway, yours is much greater than mine, but um, very rarely um, do you see a, a lawyer sat in there in, in, in the vast majority of cases it's um a round table in a stark white room with often two detectives and the accused person and the video camera with the red light blinking and um as i understand it that's that's what we are going to be presented with tomorrow but i again i i would echo damien i'd be absolutely staggered if um the police didn't give every opportunity to mr edwards to at least seek some legal advice before that interview took place given everything they knew about what they were going to allege and, and accuse him of and the potential for whatever he said in that interview if it wasn't conducted properly would never have been before a court if it hadn't been conducted properly because admissibility of interviews can become very very key parts of of pre-trial sort of um lead-ups um and uh, you know uh, th there hasn't been any suggestion that, that that the interview was done anything other than um than properly um which is why um which is why we'll, we'll all get to see it um tomorrow yeah 
Do either of you think it's in the interest or in the detriment, um, I guess, of the of the trial to allow the people of Western Australia to see this video if if Justice Hall were to release it? Which, which way do you think is the, the oh, way? Well, I think we'll be on different sides of the fence, but um, <laughs> I'll get my defence in first and say, look, I, I, as, as, a, as, a, as a journalist, I think it would be uh, um, of huge public interest mm. for this the whole of the interview to be um, allowed to be broadcast. But there is a, a section of West Australian law under our Criminal Procedure Act, which basically says that accused persons, if they were to know that the interview might be broadcast publicly at a later date, then that might alter the way that they give their evidence in that interview. And so for that purpose, it is basically very, very rare that those interviews ever get um, put forward um, to the media because of the protection of the process, if you like. Well, so I think there's a... I have a little bit more to say about that, that than Tim. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> and, and my starting point is this, that if, if ever... Just recently, um, I, I want to say in Australia, but I think worldwide, we, as the general um, consumers of media, have been subject to an interview that was given that if ever there was an example why people should be reluctant to give interviews, it was the interview to end all interviews, I hoped, which was the, and I say it with due respect, this is the Prince Andrew interview. Um, mm. And I mean, for anyone who hasn't watched it, I think that it's available, you can find it and watch it. And, and it's, it's generally an interview of a person trying to explain away something um, and, and even potentially if you are of the view that, um, and I'm talking about Prince Andrew here, I'm using that as an example because um, this person surely has the best media advisors you could ever get your hands on. Um, and and lawyers. Proceeded, <laughs> apparently, and, and proceeded to do that interview. And, and as I understand it, even against the advice of um, his most senior media advisor, um, and in, in watching that interview, if, if I think about that and the public interest in that interview, I, I'm not of the view that there's that, that it's in the public interest for for the Prince Andrew interview to to have gone to the air because it's just extended speculation about something that's a very um, sensitive matter. Now, so if we think about that in a case where the police conduct the interview, I think that it's even more sensitive because it's a it's a process where the police are under very strict um, rules and guidelines about how they're meant to do it, and the as Tim pointed out, the criminal um, procedure element of that is that if a person was giving the interview not knowing that it would potentially become something that um, Channel 7, 9 or any of the other media outlets would run as part of their um, news service or as part of their information release, then it, it could have an impact on how, um, how they would conduct them, so, you know, whether they would do the interview or not. And, and there's so many things to be said about these interviews because... The, the, every accused person has the right to remain silent. Now, Tim, as you would be aware, Nat, you're probably aware of it as well, um, is that the, the, the Miranda rights, um, generally speaking, in our system and across the globe, in my view, starting to um, be whittled away. So, so um, my understanding now in, in, in the UK, the 
uh, a person who is accused of something who chooses not to make any comment about that, that can now be considered um, against them in, in their trial process. It's not the case here in Australia, but it's, it's still the case here now that you have the right to remain silent and, and it, can't, it can't have an adverse impact on the, um, the, the decision that's made against you. H however, the, the situation as it stands at the moment is if a person is afforded those rights to remain silent and then they choose to say something, um, even after they've spoken to a lawyer, then they've voluntarily said to themselves, no, 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 I'm happy to speak and um, here's my information. Consider, consider that's, that environment and then say to them just before they're about to commence, uh, commence interview, oh, by the way, um, the media will have access to this and this, will become, uh, this could become part of um, a news story. I, I think there would be a significant amount of people that might actually decide at that point that they're not going to say anything. So I think there's a number mm. of um, live points in amongst all that information that, that you raise that um, is a really, really interesting for Western Australians living in the environment at the moment where we've got this trial going on and potentially um, tomorrow, the 5th of May 2020, this man's uh, interview is going to be played. Well, it is going to be not only a very interesting day, it's going to be a very, very big day and the feedback that we're getting is that Many of you are planning to head to court tomorrow, um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how that is managed, particularly in the environment in which we are in right now. Well, thank you both very much. Um, myself, Tim, who's going to go home and get prepared for a big day ahead tomorrow, and Alison Fan will be back with you. We look forward to having your company then for day 84 of Claremont and Conversation. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.